Chapter 9 Some Helpful Clarifications Up to this point, we have covered a lot of ground. Let us take a moment to summarize before finishing up. We have learned that love is not actually the means to obedience like we may have thought. As long as we continue merely relying on our willpower, we are under the law and enslaved to sin. The gospel does far more than motivate the evil heart to do good. God transforms the heart entirely in an instant and makes it pure. We no longer need to pray and wait for our love to increase because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 5.5 Now that it is there, we must believe that it is there, despite what is occurring in our flesh that might say otherwise. This is how faith works through love, Galatians 5.6. We do not necessarily need deeper repentance. We need deeper faith. We might now say that to repent is to believe. When we have a correct understanding of God's grace and the love within us, faith propels us out of sin unlike anything else. Our flesh is now the source of all our sinful passions. This is not at all to say that our flesh is evil. Rather, it is the desires of the flesh that are manipulated by evil in order to deceive our spirits into sin. Moreover, the flesh is not a sinful spirit or an old self or a false self. It is not to be confused with the self or spirit at all. We are not our flesh. Rather, we are in a body of flesh. And we overcome its sinful passions, making and keeping it holy, not by striving to obey God out of our own willpower, but by identifying with Christ alone, i.e., walking according to the Spirit. In the flesh, the law tells us what to do. In the Spirit, the law tells us who we are. Thus, to walk in the flesh is to simply do our best to obey God's word. But to walk in the spirit is to believe that the word is our new life and identity. Moreover, since we were baptized into Christ, just as Christ is in us, we are in him. Because Christ was crucified in the flesh and raised in the spirit, We too have a new and unseen life that is not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, with Christ in heaven. By faith, therefore, we are no longer captive to the sin and corruption of the flesh. We have died to the flesh and been born again to God. We are not even of this world anymore, but of heaven. We share in God's nature, having become His children. Although this is not complete, since we have not ourselves been resurrected bodily, The Spirit within us now conveys the power of Jesus' resurrection to our mortal bodies. Our humanity is increasingly redeemed as we abide in Him by faith. All along the way, we must know that we are clean. Jesus did not only die for the forgiveness of our sins, but for the removal of our sin. This work is complete, and it is the very meaning of atonement. You are not guilty, you are pure. You are righteous in God's sight. He sees it because it is true, and it is all by his own doing. You have never loved him so much as when you realized how he looks at you and why. For the believer, guilt, shame, and condemnation are always from the devil and never from God. Satan is your accuser. God is your redeemer. It is not a cop-out to say that God has removed our sin, 
as if we can somehow go on sinning while believing this is true. On the contrary, it is the only truth that sets us free from sin, since our identity drives our actions. Failure to obey Him is now a product of unbelief. Thus, we need to renew our minds and grow in faith that we truly are, as He says we are, dead to sin. We must rely on His Word for truth, not on what we see and feel. And perhaps the best way to begin doing so is by prayers of thanksgiving and rejoicing in the truth. Having seen now how the gospel applies to a wide variety of scenarios in our lives, I hope you have begun to put what you have learned into practice. My prayer for you is that you begin to have your own inward revelation of these truths, and more, that you do not get discouraged as you fight, nor led astray by the lies of the enemy. Seek the Lord in prayer, relying on Him to reveal the meaning of the Scriptures to you, and trust that He will lead you into all truth. See John 16, 13. In this next-to-last chapter, we will look at just a few more concepts that I believe will strengthen our foundation and help bring clarity to some unanswered questions. Jesus was tempted. As you battle temptation, it is not uncommon to get discouraged. Satan wants you to feel like you are failing so that you will give up the fight altogether. But as you try to make sense of what is occurring inside of you in these times, I have found it quite helpful to look at what occurred in Jesus when he was on the earth. The Incarnation has much to teach us. Consider this. How is it that Jesus was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin? Hebrews 4.15 Perhaps the most common answer to this question is simply that he was God. I agree that he was fully God. But this is a very cheap and unthoughtful answer, which fails to acknowledge also the fullness of his humanity. Hidden beneath this answer is the implication that his humanity, and therefore his temptation, was not actually just like ours, which is heresy. Before we move forward, we should all be utterly convinced that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. For because he has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 2, 17-18 Others will say that he remained without sin by simply not obeying his temptations. In other words, they acknowledge that he experienced all the same sorts of temptations that we feel, but that he never acted out on these desires. This is certainly true, but his sinlessness is more meaningful than just his outward behavior. The problem with this view is that it reduces sin to mere actions, despite Jesus himself saying explicitly that it is what flows from the heart that defiles a person. See Matthew 15, 19 through 20. In the Sermon on the Mount, this is one of Jesus' main teachings. Not only murder is sin, but anger. And not only adultery is sin, but lust, etc. God judges the heart, So to be perfect according to the law, the heart must be entirely void of evil desires and perfected in love. That is the true meaning of Jesus' sinlessness, a heart that was perfectly pure, never once defiled by an evil desire. So then what does it mean that Jesus was tempted? Does not temptation imply that evil desires are in the heart? And if so, then how was Jesus not defiled when tempted? 
The reason we have struggled so much to understand this is because, as we discussed in chapter 2, we have wrongly assumed that the source of temptation is the heart or spirit. But this cannot be true, for Jesus' spirit was pure. In him, there was no sin. Nothing ever came from his heart that defiled him. Where then was the source of this temptation? His flesh, of course. The word became flesh, and he was not tempted by his own desire, or else we could not say there is no sin in him. But by the desires of the body of flesh, he was in. Knowing this, we might then ask, how is it that Jesus never obeyed these temptations? It would be wrong to simply say that it is because his heart was pure. It is sort of like saying that he never sinned because he was God. It does not do justice to the reality of his temptations, and it insinuates that there was never any real possibility for him to obey them. I am more and more convinced that the reason Jesus never gave in to temptation is that he knew who he was. Yes, he was without sin in his heart, but even more, he lived by faith according to his true identity in and as God. In doing so, he never confused the passions of the flesh as his own, and therefore was never deceived. His pure heart would not have done him much good if he was not aware that he had it. So although the flesh waged war against him, just as it does with us, he was able to properly fight back and win through his faith or knowledge of his identity. The flesh made him suffer, but it never made him sin. A pure heart does not do you much good if you do not believe that you have it. When the flesh causes you to suffer, coming on strong with its unruly passions that wage war against you, do not believe the lie that you are somehow failing in these moments. God does not judge you according to the flesh, so you should not either. Do not believe the lie that the temptations and weaknesses of the flesh are a product of your spirit. Instead, fight back with the truth and be encouraged that even Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Hebrews 5.8 Read that again and take it to heart. Obedience is learned, and it is learned through suffering. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 1 Peter 4, 1-2 What an amazing verse! Suffering, as a result of denying the flesh and pursuing righteousness, is the very process that tests us and causes us to grow in faith, learning to rely not on what we see and feel, but on God's grace and unchanging word. This kind of suffering is not evidence of sin. Rather, it may even be the very evidence that we have ceased from sin. Look in the mirror. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, he will be blessed in his doing. James 1, 22-25 At one point or another, while reading this book, you may have had this thought. If we are only to believe, 
then how do we make sense of all the commands in Scripture that tell us specifically what to do? In the passage above, we find a wonderful answer. According to James, to encounter the Word of God by hearing it taught, by reading it in our Bibles, etc., is like looking at yourself in the mirror, assuming that you have been born again. For example, if God's Word says, do not lust after women, then you are not lustful. If God's Word says to forgive and to love your enemies, then you are forgiving and a lover of your enemies. If God's Word says to seek first the kingdom of God, then you are not someone who cares about money, possessions, and other worldly things. If God's Word says not to fear, then you are a courageous and faithful believer. The do's and don'ts of Scripture are actually ours and aren'ts pertaining to your true image, which is Christ. Take a minute to apply this personally to your own life. What is one thing about yourself that you feel is most contrary to God's character? Once you have identified it, give thanks to God that it is not actually who you are. Say, for instance, it is anger. You could say something like, Thank you, God, that you have made me a patient, gentle, and loving person. Or take a command within Scripture and then rejoice that it now describes you. For example, the Bible says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5. So I tell God frequently, especially when I do not feel it, I trust you completely. Thank you for putting Jesus' faith in me. I would like to reiterate that this is not merely positive thinking, as if we are creating our own truth. Rather, it is belief in an unseen truth, in what God has already accomplished. God's commands are no longer just rules to follow, or even something you need to strive to become. Rather, the whole law has been written on our hearts. See Jeremiah 31, 33. Whatever God's word commands is a reflection of who you truly are. How? Because the word himself, if you have received him with meekness, James 1, 21, is your new life and identity. This is why in the same letter, Romans, where Paul says so emphatically that we are no longer under the law, he also says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Romans 3.31. We are not under the law anymore because now the law is in us. Therefore, it still has a very important purpose to tell us who we are. Notice what else he calls this word, the perfect law, the law of liberty, James 1.25. Instinctively, there is nothing about the words perfect and law that sound liberating, but that is because we have always looked at Jesus, the perfect one, the fulfillment of the law, as just a picture on a wall. He has been something entirely outside of us, the image of what we are not, and what we should strive to become. Surely, under the law, this is exactly how it is. But under grace, Jesus comes into us, and that picture of Jesus becomes a mirror, showing Him as our true reflection. It is now easier to see what is happening when we are disobedient to God's commands. According to James, it is like walking away from the mirror and forgetting what we are like, James 1.24. Striking, isn't it? 
He does not say that if we sin, it is because we are still sinners in need of more grace. Nor is it because we do not love God enough. Instead, if we sin, it is because we forgot or did not believe that we are saints in love with God. Sin, therefore, is a product of deception, which he says in verse 22. And righteousness is truth. If we sin, it does not necessarily mean we are unrighteous. It means that we did an unrighteous thing, out of character, because we believed a lie. This changes the way that we repent, does it not? If the actual fault was due to unbelief, then, as I have said many times already, repentance is belief. Sin is no longer an accurate reflection of who you are. It is the result of not seeing your true reflection, who is Jesus. This is different for the believer and the unbeliever, to be clear. For the unbeliever, repentance requires a surrendering of one's life to Jesus, that they might die to sin and live to righteousness. But for the believer, repentance is the remembrance of that death that has already occurred and the new life that has been given. For the believer, true repentance does not entail trying to change yourself or praying that God would finally change you. Nor does it entail mulling over your depravity and beating yourself up for it. True repentance is to acknowledge that what you did was based on a lie. It is to turn back around, look in the mirror, see Jesus, and believe. The one who perseveres in this will be blessed in his doing. James 1.25 a finished work, or a process. Regarding the way I speak about the finished work of Jesus Christ, a common concern some people have is that they hear me claiming that believers are already perfect and sanctification is not a process. Hopefully, you have already seen that this is not what I teach. But in the case that you are still wondering, I will attempt here to remove your concerns. At the root of the issue is not whether there is a process, but rather, What is the process? We just need to define it. Thus far in the book, I have not argued against a process, but I have argued that the church's general understanding of the process has been wrong. Perhaps the easiest way to explain it is to use the language of the mind and heart. Before receiving Jesus into one's life, the heart needs renewal, no doubt. For the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Jeremiah 17, 9. But as we discussed in chapter 2, and then much more thoroughly in chapter 3, God has fixed this problem by giving us new, clean, and pure hearts upon which God has written His law and in which the Holy Spirit dwells. Therefore, contrary to popular teaching, believers no longer need renewed hearts. They need renewed minds. Here are four critical verses that speak to this reality. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Romans 12.2 Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 2 Corinthians 4.16-18 Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and... Be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
Ephesians 4, 22-24. You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Colossians 3, 9-10. These passages share a consistent message that there is a continual need for renewal in the Christian life. It is clear that the intended readers, ourselves included, are not perfect. Yet there is another consistent message regarding the kind of renewing that needs to occur. Once again, it is not a matter of the heart or the will. Instead, it is a matter of the mind and the way we think. We need to grow in faith and knowledge, learning to walk according to a spiritual reality that we cannot yet see fully. In doing so, the Spirit who has already sanctified our hearts will increasingly sanctify our thoughts and actions, manifesting the righteousness of God, which has been there all along. To put it simply, the more clearly we see with the eyes of faith, the more we mature into who we truly are. Therefore, the reason we are not yet perfect, despite having clean hearts, is because we cannot see perfectly into this spiritual reality. In other words, we lack revelation. One of my favorite verses that alludes to this fact is this. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. 1 John 3.2 Notice the reason that we will be like Jesus. Because we shall see Him as He is. It sounds to me like John is saying that, upon seeing Jesus, we will spontaneously combust into our new and glorified forms. How awesome! But even more interesting to me is the insinuation that the only thing keeping us from being just like Jesus now is that we do not yet see Him clearly. My takeaway? Whatever degree of His glory we currently behold is the degree of His glory that we are capable of sharing. See 2 Corinthians 3.18. Here is yet another example of the same profound biblical truth. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part... Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 1 Corinthians 13, 9 through 10, and 12. Remember the mirror analogy that we covered in the last section? In the verse above, Paul employs the same analogy. One day we will see Jesus face to face, lacking no knowledge, and we will thereby be made perfect. But in the meantime, we see him in the mirror by faith and the reflection is comparatively dim. Thus, we still press onward to perfection, not by striving to look more like Jesus, but by striving to see how we already do. I also believe it is helpful to make a distinction between perfection and purity. The Greek word that is most often translated as perfect in the Bible is teleos. The root of this word is telos, which means end. Therefore, teleos means something like mature, adult, finished, or complete, indicating that an end goal has been reached. Pure, on the other hand, means something like unadulterated or undefiled. Therefore, a pure heart describes a heart with unstained innocence or the absence of evil desire.
Using these definitions, we might describe an infant as being pure, but never as perfect. Biblically speaking, perfection is the opposite of infancy or immaturity, not impurity. Therefore, in our own spiritual infancy, we can just as rightly claim to have pure hearts without claiming to be perfect. Despite having an entirely clean conscience, we still need to grow into our new identity by developing the mind, without which we remain vulnerable to deception and error, just as a small child. It is worth noting that even Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Hebrews 2.10 Yet his heart was pure his entire life. He was holy and righteous in all his affections and desires. Or in other words, he was without sin, Yet he still had to grow through the testing of his faith before reaching perfection, which describes a fully mature human. If this was true for Christ, then why not also for the Christian? While purity describes a heart untainted by sin, perfection describes the full-grown product of someone with a pure heart. Think of it this way. A tomato plant is a tomato plant, whether it has borne fruit yet or not. From the moment the seed is planted and begins to grow, it is a pure tomato plant in that its nature, its identity, does not vary one bit. Even when the plant is just a couple inches above the ground, months away from bearing any fruit at all, it is still as much a tomato plant as it was on its first day of life and as it will be on the last. But it does not become mature or perfect until it is fully grown and bears its best fruit. So it is with the Christian life. From the moment of belief and conception, Christ is our life, our nature, our full identity, whether or not we have begun to bear fruit. If we are abiding in Christ, then there is no sin in our hearts. If there is sin in our hearts, then we are not abiding in Christ, nor abiding in truth. And in this case, we are not able to bear any good fruit. As Jesus said himself, A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Matthew 7, 17-18 We cannot bear the fruit of righteousness if we are not already righteous in a real sense. Therefore, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as Jesus is righteous. 1 John 3, 7 We cannot obey God if we have not actually become obedient from the heart. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Romans 6.17 The work is finished in this sense. Now we must learn to walk by faith in the finished work, and as a result, we will progressively mature into the full-grown image of Christ. Like Christ versus in Christ. A Bible word search will reveal to you that the phrases in Christ, in Him, in the Lord, etc., those which refer to Jesus, appear over 200 times in the New Testament. Guess how many times like Christ appears? Zero. What about like Him in reference to Jesus? Twice. Philippians 3.10 and 1 John 3.2. Even if you use a translation that is less literal, you will not find like Christ more than five times, and none of them are an accurate translation of the Greek. Here is the point that I'm trying to make. 
in Christ is the most common biblical description of the state of a Christian. Yet to most, it has become a practically meaningless expression. We read past it without a thought, assuming it to be merely flowery language. On the other hand, like Christ is hardly biblical at all, and yet it has become to many the highest goal of the Christian life. This may seem like nothing, but it makes all the difference in the world as to how we understand our righteousness. The gospel of Christ-likeness is deceptively works-based if we fail to recognize that our likeness is purely the product of our oneness. In other words, we are never to think of ourselves as like Him, apart from our identity in Him. The life of Christ is not a mere example that we are supposed to follow. If it is, then we are most utterly under the law, and we have nothing but self-righteousness. Instead, Christ is a person with whom we have been joined. The only light we shine is light himself. From the beginning to the end of the Christian life, from infancy to maturity, it is Christ's righteousness that is manifest in us. This is why Paul speaks of not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Philippians 3, 9. Sanctification is not so much the process of Jesus making us more like himself. It is Jesus himself being more and more manifest in us, which is the fruit of our ever-increasing faith. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Romans 3, 21-22 We do not fix our eyes on ourselves, claiming to be perfect. We fix our eyes on Jesus, our new life, and we dare to believe that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20 Anything apart from Him is not truly who we are. Do not let anyone convince you, Satan or otherwise, that this is a blasphemous thought. It is in your Bible, and it is time to start believing it. It takes the utmost humility to believe and receive this grace, for it allows no room whatsoever for even a trace of self-righteousness. We do not claim to be Jesus, nor even to be like Jesus. Rather, we claim to be in Jesus, and He in us. For Christ is all and in all. Colossians 3.11 It truly is all by grace through faith.